Well, as our custom, we'll stand and read uh, 1 Timothy, please. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of the God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this uh, passage is so relevant um, in our, in our uh, present situation. And uh, as we unpack your word, I think the church will see more, more and more as we go, as we go forward. And uh, this, for this book of Timothy is not the easiest. There's a lot of contextual issues and uh, different things going on. I just pray for your spirit to sort through all this stuff and to guide me into proclaiming only what's necessary for the people to hear. And uh, we want to learn from you and grow in you so that we can uh, serve you. And we uh, look forward to our time together today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today begins uh, the first sermon, really, in unpacking this letter. You'll remember from last week's service that we did an introduction to the letter, and we were able to uncover some of the major themes within it. And we spent a good portion of our time talking about why it was written. Well, today we're continuing in the letter, but this time, instead of doing a broad sweep, we're going to do uh, only a few verses, the ones we read in the opening here, verses 1 to 7. So let's read 1 and 2 together. Paul, an, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. You remember from last week's service and sermon that Paul, when he wrote this, had two recipients really in mind. The first we see in verse 2, which was Timothy, Paul's right-hand man in, in the gospel, and who he left behind in Ephesus to deal with the presence of false teachers that had arisen within the house churches there. But we also spoke that it was never Paul's intention for the words written to Timothy just to stay with him. There was a secondary recipient, ultimately the house churches of Ephesus. And that we see these, these, these people addressed primarily in verse 1 by Paul here referring himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So again, in, in one way the letter was pr uh, a personal letter. It was designed for Timothy. And it was a personal and affection letter, but in a way it was also designed as a public letter, an apostolic letter, addressed to the church in Ephesus, which we see again in verse 1. Now before we get on to the main heart of the passage, I want to make a couple observations from these opening verses that I think are worth mentioning. I've, I know some pastors, I, I, I've seen them, they do like full sermons just on 1 and 2. Uh, I decided not to do that today. I thought we could get to the heart of the uh, issues quicker by just moving on. But there's some couple things I don't want you to miss. The first one is a review of something we spoke about last week. That's a reference to Paul's apostleship. 
Remember, Paul would often refer to himself as an apostle when he was correcting problems in a church or his, his authority had been put into question. That's why in the letter to the Corinthians and the Galatians, where there's a lot of issues going on, he addressed himself as an apostle. Whereas in the letter to the Philippians, he, he didn't dress himself as an apostle, there he referred to himself as a servant, because it was a letter of encouragement and a, thank a thankfulness for their friendship. Or when he wrote a letter to Philemon, um, he, he wanted to make a gentle appeal there, so he didn't mention his authority and position, he talks to himself as being a prisoner in the Lord. So again, we know that there's something, there's some severe issues going on when Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. That gives you a clue right away. There's correcting problems. Now, it's important for Paul to uh, do this um, in terms of reminding the Ephesian church of his authority because Timothy was going to be the one speaking to them. If they're going to listen to Timothy, they needed to be reminded of who Timothy was put in charge by. And so that's why the apostleship's important. Another observation I don't want you to miss is that Paul doesn't just call himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the commandment of God. Now, I did a little bit of a search here. Commonly, when Paul writes his letters, he actually talks about being an apostle according to the will of God. The will of God. That's his common phraseology. Here, he says, by the commandment. And again, I would suggest this is not by accident. Again, Timothy's been left in Ephesus with an extremely difficult job. Once a snowball starts rolling downhill, it's hard to stop that thing. And that's what's going on in Ephesus. Well, if the church in Ephesus is going to listen to and submit to Paul's authority through the mouth of Timothy, it will be because Paul, who is giving the command, is under, the, under command. He who is giving the command is under command. And he says, by the commandment of God, our Savior. So God is Paul's boss. <laughs> That's who's his boss. And so he comes with this authority. Which leaves me with one final point from verse 1 and 2. Notice the title and description attributed to God here. He says, God our Savior. You know what's interesting? It, I don't, you won't even... I was paying attention because I know the material in advance, but Blake said, we want to give thanks to Jesus Christ, our Savior. He doesn't say Jesus Christ is our Savior. He says Jesus Christ is our hope in this verse. He calls God the Savior. That's interesting, important. So again, at first read, we might not even think anything of it. But if I were to ask you, who is your Savior? All of you would have said Jesus Christ is the Savior. I, I doubt the word God would come out of your mouth immediately. Okay? Now, why this is so significant is that did you know that in all of Paul's letters that he wrote, and there was 13, potentially 14, if you, there's argument over Hebrews, but in all of the letters, the only place he gives God the title of Savior is the pastoral epistles. For those of you who don't know, the pastoral epistles are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Those are the only three books that are pastoral epistles, three out of 13 or 14 books. The only place that refers to God as Savior is in these epistles. The majority of references in the other letters, he addresses God as Father. Now this is worth talking about, I think, because this, I, this is not by accident. 
Don't think Paul's confused in his theology here. You have to go back to his lens. He's first century. He's trained in the Old Testament. The concept of God being Savior is found in multiple places in the Old Testament. Deuter, um, Psalm 24, 5, they will receive a blessing from the Lord, the God who saves them will declare them right. Deuteronomy 32, 15, Israel grew fat and kicked. They were fat and full and firm. Um, we'll leave those, that alone. Uh, they left the God who made them and rejected the, God, the rock who saved them. Right? This is, uh, again, an Old Testament concept that God is Savior. But what's important, I think, is for Paul, both Christ and God function in a saving role. And for him, you can't distinguish one another. And that should not alarm you based on his Trinitarian view of God, that there are three persons in one being. And if you want to have a real brain teaser, watch what Paul says here in Titus. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It is by the command of God our Savior that I have been entrusted with this work for him. I'm writing to Titus, my true child, in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. Okay? He's not dyslexic. He's not confused. It's his Trinitarian view of, 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 uh, of, God, of uh, the deity of Christ and the deity of God. And he understands that both function. I heard it described this way, like um, that Christ is the instrument and God is the one who like, orchestrates everything. Here's a question though. Why in the pastoral epistles God is Savior and nowhere else? Ready for the answer? I don't know. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> no, um, if you have an answer, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. I did read some commentaries. I did get their opinions uh, and what they, why they thought so. I didn't think it was strong enough to present to you. If you want to hear what they thought, I can read it to you later. Um, however, let's just say this. It had to, it must have had to do with the false teachers and what they were claiming regarding the nature of Christ or God himself. It has to be. It has to do something with what they're teaching. And I'm wondering if as we move through the letter more, that this will become more evident as we go through. But like I said, if you know the answer, I'm happy to hear it. So let's dive into the rest of the letter. Let's read verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to go to 6 and 7. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of the gospel which is by faith. Verse 6, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Once again, we see the purpose for the letter in verse 3, and, well, and 3 forward. Uh, the church in Ephesus, which began so strongly under Paul's pastoral care, is now in deep theological and life trouble. These false teachers have risen amongst, from amongst them and taken positions of leadership in the church and leading its members astray. And Timothy has been stationed in Ephesus to put a stop to the whole thing. So, what were they teaching? Well, it's difficult to know the exact content because there are no specifics given uh, in, in detail in these verses. But there are some clues that are going to prove helpful to us as we move forward. I'm just going to show you this uh, first. 
uh, their heresy had three components to it. Verse 7, they wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted to, but they didn't understand what they were saying. So the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, is part of their teaching. They have strange doctrine in verse 3. And uh, in verse 4, there was myths and endless genealogies. Okay, so that's the, that's the core of their teaching. We can say that for absolute certainty in terms of the principles of their teaching. Let's, let's take each piece uh, one by one. Let's start with strange doctrine in verse 3. He says, I, I instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That's what he says to Timothy. He wants Paul, to, these men, to stop this strange teaching. The word strange is simply um, translated the word different. And I'm guessing some of your translations actually have the word different in your Bibles. Now, there's two strong clues within the letter about what was strange about their teaching. And the reason why these are such strong clues is because the word doctrine is actually used in the other verses. Okay, so look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1 with me. It says here, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of their hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who, watch this, forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So, we know that they taught strange things regarding marriage. You are to abstain from it. And two, you are to abstain from certain foods. Really, the strange doctrines were the teaching on ascetic practices. Now, the word ascetic simply means to basically... Um, uh, practice forms of severe self-discipline or abstinence uh, which, which bring pleasure. So think of monks in the monasteries who try to like, you know, do things to like not self-indulge and to abstain as a way of trying to become some kind of like spiritually whole. Uh, these ascetic practices are obviously something that these teachers are teaching and, they, and to Paul, these are strange doctrines to forbid marriage and to... Uh, and to forbid certain foods. And again, we'll be getting into that later on. One more, chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Here, their teaching was was c contrary to the words of Jesus Christ, no doubt in the regards to how, the, how one was saved and by what means one was saved, so it was to do with salvation, but of equal importance, how to live out that life. He says, conforming to godliness. This is about how to live out the Christian life. So these false teachers had made a life of obedience and holiness to God a laughable matter. And again, we, uh, we'll see these issues present in the later or this issue's present, you know, future on, and we looked at some of them last week as we uh, studied the introduction. So that's what the strange doctrines want. We know for sure it include uh, goofy ways to get right with God, and we know it had to do with abstaining from certain practices that God was in favor of. But we also here have, in verse 4, myths and genealogies. 
Timothy was instructed to tell these men to stop teaching funny myths and endless genealogies. So what were those? Well, the word myth is used again in chapter 4, verse 7. Paul calls it their worldly fables. Now, myths or fables, as you know, are basically stories or legends that are often popular in belief, but simply not true. I don't know if you ever watched this show. Something tells me Roger and Daniel did. I don't know why, but you ever see that show Mythbusters? <laughs> okay. You remember that show, Mythbusters? There all these myths, all these supposed things that were factual and stories about things that were true, and these people would put them to the test. And my favorite was cell phones exploding at gas pumps. How, even to this day, there's pictures of no cell phone signs. These guys took the cell phone, like talked on it the whole time near this gas pump. They even put the cell phone on the ground, put gas on it, and lit it on fire and it wouldn't explode. Okay? This is how awesome this Mythbusters is. And I was like, thank you! Like, why do I, like, I can't stand the gas jockeys that come up to me and tell me to get off my cell phone. I, but anyway, that's just what it is. So, Mythbusters, okay? These guys were clearly telling stories and legends that were popular in belief, but simply not true. They were just bogus stories. I like what he says in 7. They didn't understand either what they were saying or the matters about which they made confident assertions. They just weren't true. Now these genealogies, um, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Genealogies, of course, have to do with life origins, one's ancestry. And we see genealogies listed in the scripture, right? In Genesis, there's a list of genealogies from Adam to, to Abraham and so on. And we see uh, genealogies for Jesus from Adam all the way to his birth. And he, we, he's, he's listed there. And so, um, so we, have, we have this whole thing put together. But the, probably the final piece of their heresy uh, had to do with their allegiance to the Old Testament law. Again, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand what they're talking about. Now, why this is important is that their teaching primarily then had, had been shaped through a Judaic lens. All right? Primarily an, an influence of the Judaic lens. Now think about what Jews believed in the days of Jesus. A lot of them. Not everyone, but many of them. For them, the, the law was very restrictive in its nature. Salvation, for example, was limited to who? The Jews. It wasn't for the Gentiles. And if you wanted to separate yourself from people, you had to observe what? Certain ceremonies and rituals to keep you at bay from other people. That's exactly how it went. Remember with Jesus, he says, why don't you got, uh, the Pharisee says, why don't you eat, wash your hands before you eat food? Like, why are you not doing that? That's a, that's a means to godliness and you're disobeying our understanding of the law. Well, this is really important because if that's how the Jews saw it, these, we already saw that they think that the ascetic practices in, listed in four and six, or chapter four, we already know they believe in the restrictive nature of things. So they've adopted the law and they've, they've put into question um, God's, uh, how salvation is accomplished. And they've also put in together how, uh, uh, put to te the test how these things are lived out. They've made it restrictive in nature and, remind, and just made the idea that ceremonies and rituals are part of what it is to be saved. And that's necessary to have this elite spiritual state. I think that's why in chapter 2, Paul goes to great lengths to talk about the universal nature of salvation. Look at this quickly with me in chapter 2, verse 1. 
First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Now, that word all occurs six times between verses 1 and 7. Six times between 1 and 7, the word all. He's talking about the universal nature of God's openness for salvation. That's not necessary, I don't think, if, uh, if the false teachers are teaching that, but they're not. They've got the Judaic mindset. Salvation is restricted. And so he's reminding Timothy of these things. And when you, it's really cool, like, you know, when you, when you start to study more, you, can t you get to see how the, how the letter all fits together and why Paul goes in the order he does. So Paul goes to great length then in this letter then in speaking about how one's lifestyle, conduct, and character are key in the Christian walk. He's doing that because that's in opposition to what the false teachers say, which say this, rituals and ceremonies is how you get right with God. That's really important. It's not about your life and your conduct and the way you live out the Christian life. That's secondary to God. He doesn't care about that. So how would I summarize this teaching? I'm doing the best I can to put the pieces together like you are. This is me trying to tell you what their teaching would have been like if you were there based on the things we discussed now. True spirituality and one's acceptance by God was not found by faith in Jesus Christ, but through adherence to mythological reconstructions of the Old Testament genealogies and secret interpretations of the law promoting ascetic practices. That's, how I, that's what I think was going on. You get right with God uh, through uh, ancestry, by looking at your ancestry and things like that, and, and uh, seeing where you come from and how this all relates, and basically uh, adhering to the law in the way they interpreted it, which of, of course involved ascetic practices. Anyhow, um, just so you know, uh, the commentaries I read gave forms of this as their understanding as well. So I'm not, in, it's not me coming up with this on my own. I've got other men that I've studied that hold to these uh, beliefs as well, if that gives you any uh, trust in what I just said. But if you have another interpretation, again, I'm w willing to hear it. But this is important, see, because at, at first I was wishing that Paul would spell out the heresy really clearly, like give me all the details, like what did they mean, what, did, what myths were they teaching, what genealogies were they teaching. But I realized um, in some ways I'm, I wished he did, but now I'm glad he didn't. And here's why. If we couldn't find an identical religion or false belief in our culture that matched up with that, we would say, well that's only true for them, not for us. We'd do that. Well that's, not, that's their teaching, not ours. So we can't apply it. So what I thought was, you know what, this is really important. What we do then is look for the principles of the heresy. And the principles are absolutely, clearly in all false religion and cult today. The principles. Alright. Here's what's key in the principle of heresy. Um, the righteousness before God does not come by faith alone in Jesus Christ, but be, can it be obtained through rituals and ceremonies. That's in every heretical teaching. Christ is not sufficient on himself to deal with your sin and make you right with God. You need to adhere to these ritualistic practices to be right. As a result, the way one lives in obedience is really insignificant. It's not important 
life and conduct as a Christian is secondary and it doesn't even matter in some instances. I'll give you a story and I apologize you've heard this before. Some of you, some of you, this is new to you. Janice and I go to get married and uh, I was only a Christian for two, three years, relatively new to the faith and um, didn't do a lot of study on Catholicism. Not a lot. Well, none at all, I should say. And I go to get married and uh, her mom asks if Janice, when I would get married in the Catholic Church, and uh, wanted it to be there with a priest. And I said, well, we, got a, we, I said, we can get married at the Evangelical Free Church for free, and I attend there, and everything will be taken care of. It won't cost us anything. And she was insistent, and I didn't know why. So I go out and buy a catechism, and I read it, like basically like all the major points. And I'm like, ah, now I get why she wants the priest to be involved and, the, and, uh, and the, to be in the Catholic Church. So uh, by that time, I, to appease Denise's mom, we met the, the, the priest at the Catholic Church in Okotoks to see what this would look like if we were to do a combined service with him involved. Again, this is before I bought the catechism, so that was just, it was just all coming fast at me. And, uh, and then after I was reading the catechism during that time, I realized that he couldn't be involved. We had to separate ourselves from, from him and the Catholic Church in terms of why we'd be married there. One day I'm training people on the floor and the, 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 just with no, he didn't even phone me for an appointment. He shows up, the priest shows up at my gym. He says, can I talk to you? He pulls me off the floor and I said, what's up? He goes, uh, he had a sheet. He says, if I'm going to be part of your marriage ceremony, you need to be baptized. Ch your children need to be baptized and you need to attend Catholic school. Otherwise I can't be part of your, your wedding. I said, I will, I can't, I will not do either of those two. And he says, okay, fine, well then we're, we're done, basically. And I said, yeah, like, you know, we are, we're done. And he walked out. Next day, he shows up at Janice's classroom. Says, Janice, can I pull you aside? You can't take communion anymore in this school. Here's where it gets better. That same year, that same year, there's an award in the Catholic school system called, uh, it's, uh, it's a word to uh, the teacher in the whole division who most emulates Jesus Christ in conduct and behavior and lifestyle. Guess who won the award? My lovely wife. See the absolute ludicrous discrepancy? She had colleagues and stuff who were like fornicating, you know, like whatever, like getting drunk on the weekends, slandering, gossiping, stealing, lying constantly constantly in their life who could participate in communion because they were willing to have their kids baptized and go to this Catholic school. And yet, Janice wins the Faith Award for the, the conduct of life. And Paul's whole message in this letter is conduct, becoming of a follower of Jesus Christ. So it gets better. Do you know that to this day we're not considered married? Read this. When a Catholic party gets married, he ordinarily must have a Catholic wedding ceremony in order for his marriage to be valid. If a Catholic wishes to, to validly marry any other way, for example, observing his fiancé's Protestant form, he must obtain a dispensation from the Catholic canonical form of, from the bishop. This is ordinarily handled through his local pastor. 
If he fails to obtain a dispensation and proceeds with a wedding apart from the church, his wedding lacks canonical form and his marriage is not valid. Lack of canonical form constitutes grounds for annulment. Denise can divorce me and the Catholic Church will say, that's fine, you were never married anyway. So you figure this one out. Obviously the priest didn't know about the award that she was put up for. Right? He, that was probably shocking to him when she got that. All the cults have these principles in common church. The reason why cultic heretical teaching like this is so attractive is it doesn't matter how you live. It matters the rituals and ceremonies you do to get right with God. And all of the cults and heretical teaching basically minimizes Christ's um, they might say we believe that Jesus died for the, your sins and the atonement for sins, but the way you receive that is through rituals and practices, not through grace by faith in Christ alone and, and, and whatnot. This is so important, church. So what were the effects of the teaching? Here's the effects in the church. You can write these down. Verse 1 through 4. Um, uh, he says here, these give rise to mere speculations rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So it, it, there was speculations going on. So they couldn't arrive at truth because they were speculating. Does, does that teacher saying what is right? Is that teacher saying what is right? Like it was all over the map. They couldn't come to a conclusion about what was true and what was not. So like, and when they would teach, they'd be like, hmm, I wonder if that has any validity. So they could never land on anything to live their life by. It was speculative. It wasn't rooted in truth. So you can imagine if we couldn't come to consensus and truth in here, how chaotic we'd be. Number two, fruitless discussion in verses one, chapter one through six, or one and one six. Envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction, according to chapter six, three through five. You see why Paul was so adamant that Timothy stop the false teaching. It was destroying the very unity of the church and everything Christ died for. So what should have been going on? Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a severe... A se severe? <laughs> Not too. There's speculative teaching for you. Uh, a sincere faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Really, Paul could have said this. He could have just stopped at love. The goal of our instruction is love. It's interesting, you know, because when, the te when, when people came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? When you look at how thick Leviticus and Deuteronomy is and stuff, he says, well, I can tell you, you love God with your whole heart and soul and mind, and the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. I'll summarize the entire commandments in love. So it makes sense then that Paul says the entire, our goal of our instruction is love. Love for God and love for others. So the question then is, how do you love God and love others the way Paul's talking about here? And why this is important is, see these guys make us, they, they just make statements like, like we all just know automatically what they're talking about. <laughs> Because the churches then did understand what they were talking about because they, they were taught by him and were under his authority and so on. We have to make sense of what Paul's saying. So how do we love God? Jesus in John 15, 9, 
Well, actually, yeah, I said this. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. I abide in my love. Watch this. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. How do we show we love God? Not by the rituals, not by the ceremonies, by the way we keep his commandments. By the way we keep his commandments. Obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we know. That's how we know. John 15, 9. Very simple. How do we know we love others? I think Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4 is very helpful. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And right after he gives the example of Christ submitting himself to God's plan to go to the cross to show how selfless he was and how he did it with humility. And he looked out for our interests when he did that and not his own. In other words, to do this, church, you make a shift in your mind from exclusivism to inclusivism. Meaning, I'm, you, know, you look at yourself as, I'm going to exclude certain people because I see myself as superior, to I'm going to include them even if I have that in inclination that in certain areas of life I might be doing better than them. But it doesn't stop you from looking out for their interests and so on. And here's the thing, church, we know this. It's an exercise of the will. It's a choice. It's to bite your tongue, take it on the chin for the greater good of the community, to overlook wrongs in certain situations. It's an exercise of the will. It's a decision on your part. It's a choice. And you know what? It's not a suggestion by the Lord either. It's a command. John 15, 17. This I command you, that you love one another. That's the command. And there's relational benefits to this church. He's not doing it because he's lording it over us and trying to be a dictator. He understands the relational benefits to us. You know that it keeps unity and promotes healing in the church? Look at this. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Both in scope, you know, because sin comes in different varieties and forms of, and so on that we encounter. There's different categories of sin and goodness knows we can sin against each other in multiple ways. Right? So if we can, if we can um, deal with it properly and we can do this, love will cover these, this scope of sins. But it even can cover the, the amount of sin done. Right? Love, or can, love can overcome like a, a, a grave offense or a repeated offense. So again, there's relational benefits to this. John 13, 35 also talks about the, why love is important. It's a testimony to the outside world of how we function in here together. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way we treat one another in the community is going to be a testimony to the, the believers who come in, non-believers who come into our church and visit or the way we function in society. You know, uh, Sharon, like she came here a couple times through Christmas that used to work for me. And she hasn't come, you know, she's not a regular tender yet, but she's come a couple times. And we went for coffee and, uh, and, and I said, so how has it been coming to Genesis House a couple times? And she goes, you know what, Andrew? The people there are wonderful. They're really nice and they're, they treat like they're really great to talk to you and I really enjoy your community there. See, 
Whether she comes to Christ or not, I don't, I mean, as I, I, don't, I don't know. But here's the point. At least our community wasn't offensive enough to her to not want to come back. If the message of Christ is, that's one thing, but at least our community was, is a strong point for her. Dan told me about his year-end service. You know how we always do the time of sharing on the last, of the last service every month? Dan, I said, how did it go, Dan? He goes, well, I had new people at the church. Uh, and the funny thing is, was they came first time to that sharing time, just like Don came the first time to sharing time. And he goes, Angie, you know what was amazing to me? I was so proud of my church. And I go, why? He said, well, um, one story after another is how the communities have been of such benefit to them in terms of their walk with Christ. And the people that were new were, were astounded about the community in Pine Ridge. And their experience was not that in previous, in previous um, uh, circumstances. Our love for one another can be a testimony. You see why the church is in trouble in, in Ephesus? They're not covering a multitude of sins. They're not being a testimony. They're entering into speculations, fruitless discussions, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. The world experiences that on the outside of the church. That's what they're used to. To come into the church and experience that is not going to be of any benefit to the gospel message. Okay, let's finish with this. In order for us to love this way, it has to come from somewhere. Well, Paul tells us where it comes from. Verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Three separate things that Paul addresses here. Now, there's no, once again, no description here of what it means to have a sincere faith. No description of what it is to have a pure heart or a good conscience. And so he leaves it up to poor little me to try to solve this for you. Although you have a strong inclination already or, or convinced from your own studies. But uh, let me just say first that these three markers stood in deep contrast to the false teachers. In terms of the false teacher's heart, they're described as being liars in chapter 4 and people who persist in a sinful lifestyle in 520, in verse 224. In terms of consciousness, they're defined as having a seared conscience in chapter 4, verse 2. And in terms of sincere faith, in 119, Hymenaeus and Alexander are described as having a shipwrecked faith. And in 4.2, a hypocritical faith. So, right off the cuff, we've got three categories of life, but the false teachers emulate these things already in these different areas in the way that God doesn't want them to be done elsewhere in the letter. So we get some hints there. But I want to just talk quickly about another piece of scripture that I think would help us a lot. You see, the heart, the pure, a heart is the center of our thought life, where our beliefs sort of lie and where our convictions are. But what's really important to me is Romans chapter 2. It talks about the heart and the conscience in one, in one paragraph. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing them or defending them. So what's important here is that here we see that within a, heart, a person's heart is the internal law code that God puts in every single human being. Okay? So every single human being, Christian or not, has been given an internal law code by God. 
We all have an internal guiding system. We know what's right, we know what's wrong. That's a stamp code of ethics in every human being. That's why automatically we know, we know not to lie, we know not to steal, uh, we know like all these types of things without ever being told, without ever being told. They're internal in every human being, regardless of culture, gender, race, whatever. But we're also all, hard, all hardwired to know when that code has been met or violated. Now what's cool about this is when you become a Christian, you become a Christian and you learn the teachings of Christ and the New Testament, the Old Testament, you get a, a, greater, uh, a greater capacity of what God wants you to know about how to live out your life. So you have your basic law written code, but then you kind of have this extra package that comes, and so you're, you become more sensitive to what God wants in terms of the, the, more of the nitty gritties. The way I look at it, this is maybe a bad illustration, but I'll give it anyway, is like if you have a car, we went to buy our Toyota, there was three versions. There was like the, the basic level, the limited, and the platinum. So like every person gets the, every human being gets the basic car. They get the basic version, but if you want to get the limited or platinum, you have to do have upgrades. So the upgrades to your law code is to learn the scriptures and to learn Jesus Christ's way of living out that life. So, so what happens then is when you learn these things, you have a, a greater capacity to know how to obey the Lord in the way you live. Now I think the pure heart then has to do with a pure heart is one who obeys the laws, which are the law code that is written in you. One who, who know, has this internal sense of right and wrong and is obedient to those laws of commands. And I, get a, I can support this by Psalm 24. Four. Uh, David says this, and I love this because he uses the word pure heart. These are David's words, word for word. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. So he has the external law of God, right? He has the law of God and he's got the law that's been placed in him um, just by being born human. He says, I've not lifted up my, my soul to falsehood and sworn deceitfully. I've obeyed the internal law and the external law in these areas and therefore I have a pure heart. So I think again, remember the description of these men in terms of their hearts, they're, uh, these people are liars. They're deceivers. They're obeying, they're disobeying the very law written in their, in their internal law code. They know it. So a pure heart is to be basically allegiant and obedient to the Lord. How about a good conscience? So i got to get back to my notes here. A good conscience. I should uh, become a good note taker. Never mind a good conscience. What happened here? All right. According to Romans 2, the conscience is something that bears witness. So here's what happens when a person violates their, the law written on their hearts. Their conscience acts like an alarm system. It's an evaluator of how you've done in relation to the law written in your heart. If you're done well, your conscience basically like pats you in the back, and if it's, if it's done poorly, it produces guilt. So a good conscience then is someone who's basically is sensitive to the alarm system that goes off, right? And so a good conscience is one that is guilt-free. 
It's guilt-free. Finally, sincere faith. Um, in Greek, the sincere, sincere just means genuine, just like it does in English. Now, based on the false teacher's description again, uh, to be sincere is not to be full of hypocrisy. To be genuine is not to be full of hypocrisy. Your, your, your theology is not to be divorced from your lifestyle. You are to practice what you preach. This is critical for Paul because if the false teachers, the false teachers there were not sincere because they were knowingly and pers- purposely deceiving the church in order to make a profit. Their motivating factor in the ministry was to make a buck. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says they were there for greed. A sincere faith is one who lives out what they preach. Someone who is genuinely devoted to the Lord and it's manifested not only in doctrine, but in the way they live. And again, it's hard to separate all three in, in some ways because they're all very much interconnected. That's, that's, that's me trying to do that for you. So what do we learn from these, this, this uh, sermon? I'm gonna, I call these the principles of all heresy. One, they will deny the sufficiency of Jesus' death and resurrection and solely bringing about our salvation. All heres, heresy will say Christ is not enough and his death and resurrection is not enough to bring about salvation for you. Not enough. You have to add something or take something away, but it, it's not enough. As, as opposed to Paul, who talks about the mercy and grace of God being poured over his life and bringing him into relationship with him. That's what was so surprising for Paul. The guy was exemplary in obedience to the law. When he met Jesus Christ on the road in Damascus, he couldn't believe that he wasn't righteous before God, despite his, his zeal for the law. He couldn't believe it. He was absolutely struck to the point that he didn't eat and drink for three days. Number two, the principles of all heresy will emphasize the need for ceremonial and ritualistic practices to be right with God and give little to no concern for one's conduct and character. Denise, you can't take communion because you, you didn't, I didn't, uh, well, I can't be part of your wedding because you won't baptize your children in the, Catholic, uh, in the Catholic faith. But it's okay that you got the award for living out the life exemplary to Jesus Christ. And we know, um, yeah, we, we just, I mean, I, don't, I could go on after cult after cult after false teacher after false teacher. It's, I don't have to, I'm preaching to the choir. Lesson number two. The goal of all Christian instruction is to teach us how to love. Listen, why do you go to church? Here's your new answer. So I can learn how to love God and others. Done. Okay, next question. That's the goal. You know what? Sounds so easy, but it's so hard to do. (laughs) Think about it. Seven years at Genesis House, we've had some issues to work through between one another. It's a choice to love and to forgive and to look past hurts and move on and things like that it, and get over each other's pre- preferences and prejudices and desires. It's a lot of hard work to learn to love. But the goal of instruction is we need to learn how to love God by obeying Him. And that takes a lot of work too, how to teach people to obey. And secondly, how to love one another. But that's ultimately what it's about. Jesus summarized the, great, the commandments in, in that one saying. That's, the, that's how you understand how to live out the Christian life. And finally, our love for God and others will depend on 
us having an obedient heart, a sensitive conscience, and a genuine faith. We keep those three things in check on a daily basis through our study of the scripture, prayer, confession, all these things, and we will be able to maintain God's standard for us in Genesis House. But I hope I captured the essence of the opening verses for you and you understand God's word in a much richer and deeper way. So let's have a time of discussion.